0: If you've been watching the news lately, maybe reading your newspaper, um, you are aware that there has been an outbreak of uh, meningitis, a rare form. It's in nine states across the country. As of this morning, uh, it's affected 64 people. It's caused five deaths. Uh, 29 of those people are right here in Tennessee. Uh, in terms of the diagnosis with meningitis, three in Tennessee have died. Meningitis inflames the lining of the brain, the spinal column, it can be fatal. Uh, The outbreak, in fact, was discovered or pinpointed about two weeks ago by a doctor right here at Vanderbilt who had a patient, was not getting well, noticed some fungal virus in her spinal column and realized she had taken a steroid shot for back pain. Quite common relief from the back pain, take a steroid injection. They traced the batch of steroids to a laboratory in Massachusetts, which has been shut down while under investigation, the Tennessee State Health Commissioner noted this, that the attack rate of the disease, I didn't know this, but the attack rate is uh, those who, you know, went to get relief from back pain, took the steroid shot. The percentage of those who actually get the fungal meningitis, he said, is below uh, 100%, which is a bit of good news and a very bad news story. And I tell this because I want you to think about something. The very thing... That, that these folks who took the, uh, the steroid, the very thing that they thought would relieve their pain, actually carried a microscopic, microscopic fungal disease that exacerbates their pain and in fact could kill them. How about that? And I cite the story because when we come to Luke chapter 20, verse 41, turn there in your Bibles if you have them, when we come there, we, we come across, I think, something similar, but on a much greater scale in terms of the pain inflicted, and if I can say it this way, in terms of the attack rate and fatality rate of the disease. It's going to take a little bit of work on our part. We're in Luke chapter 20, verse 41, all the way to 21 verse 4. Take a little bit of work to see, but when we do, my prayer is that we will avoid uh, this particular batch of medicine that's in this text. We'll avoid it like the plague. For to take it, quite frankly, is to die. Contextually, we're at the tail end of a section in Luke that began back in 1945, Luke 1945. Where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. Uh, He remains in the temple and the religious leaders of that day, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they just launch these questions at him seeking to discredit him. He rebuffs them all. I want you to note what Luke records in verse 40 of chapter 20. He says, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And when I read that, I want to say, you're dang straight, you know, back off of Jesus. I mean, they keep coming and coming and you want to go enough already. Well, they don't have the courage to ask him any more questions. But Jesus, if I can say it this way, that may make sense in a moment, may not right now. Jesus has the unwavering compassion, even for those who seek to destroy him to ask them a question which could save them. If there's a, a structure to the text today, it would hang on these three words or these three phrases. There's a question, there's a warning, and there's a widow. Okay? If you're taking notes, you want to write that in your notes, you know, write that, you know, in three sections on your notes. There's a question, there's a warning, and there is a widow. Most Every New Testament scholar would say that the chapter break on chapter 21 is unfortunate. You know, we, these chapters were added later, uh, this is one line of thought. Because when we get a chapter break, our tendency is, and, and really rightly so in a sense, we go, well, we're on to something new, aren't we? Okay, done with that chapter. Now let's go to the next topic, new paragraph. No. In fact, I'm going to say to you that the key to understanding this particular section of Luke is to determine what the question, the warning, and the widow have in common. When we understand what they have in common, we understand the text. And I will tell you now, the thread that holds them together is a contaminated batch of steroids that people have been taken for thousands of years. It has a 100% attack rate and fatality Now, we're going to look at each section at a time, and so rather than reading the whole, I'm just going to invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I take it a paragraph at a time. Let's start with verses 41 to 44. Let me say this. Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110. As he quotes it, I'm going to make a comment about it. Our text for today, then he said, that's Jesus, Jesus said to them, how is it that they, and the they here is, how is it that the religious leaders who've been hammering me with these questions, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? The Christ is a title for the Messiah, the anointed, the one that's coming to save us. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, it's interesting that he's going to quote David, they revere David. And rightly so. They're not, they would never hammer David with these questions. They'd never treat David like they're treating him. He says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord. Let me stop right there. Everybody look up here for a moment. There's two different Hebrew words here. The Lord said to my Lord. He's not talking to say the Lord God, Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai. my my Savior, the Messiah. Now we're getting our New Testament minds. We'd look at it like this. What he's saying is that God, the father said to God, the son, who's the Messiah. And as you read this Psalm, you got to keep those two things in mind. So we read it. The Lord said to my Lord, my Savior, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Reminds me of a riddle my grandfather told me when I was 10, 11 years old. You've heard it a hundred times, maybe. You know, he told me and just always stumped me, never could get it. Brothers and sisters, have I none? But this man's father is my father's son. And he'd say, who's this man? Or some people say, who is the I? You know, and Here's the problem. Now, some of you won't even hear the message because you're going to Google it. You're going to be going, what is this man? Who is? Don't, don't do it. I assure you this. The question Jesus asked is not nearly as oblique. It is absolutely plain, simple, and clear. He asks, how could David say that the Messiah is his son. That's all he's saying. How, how could David say that the, that, that the Messiah is his Lord and his son at the same time? I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I'm going to say this to you. If you cannot answer that question, you cannot be a Christian. Now, those of you who are working on the riddle now are going, whoa, 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 what, what did Jesus say? Wait, wait, what did he say? I need to track with that. Here's what I mean. If a person can't answer that question, okay, then then that person does not believe in who Jesus is and all Jesus is according to what the Bible reveals. And so I'm, I'm making this assumption, I'm going, so if a person isn't believing in who Jesus says he is according to the Bible, then that person is believing in a Jesus that's less than what God reveals. So that person can't be saved. That makes sense. That's why I say, if you can't answer the question, you can't be a Christian because you wouldn't, you would not believe in Jesus whom the Bible reveals. Stick with me. It'll, it'll get clearer. I think two things, every Jew knew and believed Okay. When they read this, and this, you know, they, they believed this. First of all, that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. What does that mean as a messianic psalm? It means the psalm itself is speaking of Messiah. It's speaking of the greater king that's coming. Every Jew believed that. I'm telling you, we get to our New Testament, you know it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. They just keep going back to the well over and over again. Why? Because it speaks so clearly of who Jesus is. Every Jew They believe this is a messianic psalm. Yes, David spoke it and sang it and recorded it, but the Spirit inspired David to speak of his Lord and his God who would also be his son. Second thing to keep in mind everyone believed that the Messiah, the Savior who would come, would come from the line of David. The Old Testament is absolutely clear. 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. God promised, that, promised to David that from him would come a king whose kingdom would never end. This is undisputed. Prior to his conception, Luke 1 records he will be, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his Father God. David. This is before he was conceived, before he was even birthed into the world. Luke records, Joseph also went up from Galilee. This is Luke 2. From the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why did, they, why did he go to Bethlehem? Because he was of the house and family of who? Of David. The blind man sitting by the road of Jericho, what did he scream out over and over? And everybody said, shut up. And he just kept saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of, David, have mer- son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't saying son of David as in, David had a thousand, you know, he had thousands of sons. He's not saying you're one of the sons. No, he's saying you're the son. The son, have mercy on me. No one questioned that Jesus was of the line of David, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees included, right? They never looked at him and said, show me the birth certificate. <laughs> no, because who, who kept better records than anyone on genealogy? Not the Mormons. <laughs> They're not around yet. Uh, the, the Jews, they had the records. He's, he's, a, he's of David. And the Messiah would be of David. David. However, it's not enough to believe that Jesus was of the line of David. It's necessary, but it's incomplete. I want you to notice their answer. When he asked them that question, how do they answer? Like you're answering. How do they answer? What do they, how do they answer? Silence. It's, it's, it's deafening. And can I say quite literally, it's, it's deathly because it will cost them their eternity to not answer this question, to not believe it. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, gets at the very heart of the matter, I think. And he helps us understand what's at stake when Jesus answers this question. This is my copy from college. I still have it. And chapter five, let me just read a little bit. This touches on what this question means. Packer writes, it's no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe. For the realities with which it deals pass man's understanding. But it is sad that so many make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. And he goes on to say, for example, people have difficulty with the atonement. He, he, he died in our, he was a substitute payment for sin. They have, they, have, they have difficulties with the virgin birth. They have difficulties with the miracles he did. They have difficulties with the resurrection. Can't do, can't be, can't be, can't be. He says, but, the, but, but in fact, the real difficulty does not lie in these things at all. It does not lie in the Good Friday message, nor in the message of Easter. The real difficulty lies in the message of Christmas, the incarnation. Listen to what he says. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man and that he took humanity without loss of deity, So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Very insightful. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It's here that Jews and Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many of those who have difficulties with, oh, he couldn't do the miracle. He couldn't have turned the water to wine. He couldn't have walked on water. He couldn't have have rose from the dead. It's here where they come to grief. It is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. He says, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else in the New Testament. Is he not nailing it? When we come to the incarnation and we give that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Men and women, when we look ahead and look at everything he did, multiplied the loaves, walking on water, that's peanuts. I mean, the rest of that like is... Makes total sense that he rose from the dead. It's like, of course, he's God, man, that he died. Now that'll make you stop and think. It was our sins that held him there. Let me say it this way in terms of principle. When you give that Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully divine your battle with him is over. When you, when you give that, your bat, what is there to fight about? Are you going to fight with God? No, the, the battle's over. When you give that he's fully God and fully human. And in our story, they won't give it. We know you're of David. We're just not going to give you this, that you're God. Even though David said he was. Messiah would be. Jesus goes from this question to a warning. Look at 45 to 47. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses. And for appearances, that's a key phrase there, appearances' sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus is simply saying appearances are, what's the next word I'm gonna say? Deceiving. We all know that appearances are deceiving. They, uh, the the religious leaders of the day assumed this, that their high standing, which they had, that their wealth, which they had, that because they got the best seats, everyone gave them, which they did. All of that was because God approves of us. So of course you approve of us because God approves of us because of what we do and how we keep the law. That's how they're living. They played the part with precision, including, he says here, this is convicting, long prayers with zero substance. Only problem, just like they refused to see what David saw, so they're not gonna see what David saw, they also refuse to hear and see what God saw when he picked David. In that familiar passage that most of you will remember. From 1 Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel when he picked David. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. There's that phrase. But the Lord looks at the what? What does he look at? The heart. Not Not the organ that's beating. But your essence. Your soul. Your spirit. Who you are. That which lives forever within. They looked, they felt, they smelled, they sounded righteous, righteous, outwardly. But what's the real condition of their heart? We don't need an x-ray machine. We have the Bible. We have God's disclosure. What does he say about their heart? Look at verse 47. Who devour widows, houses. Beneath this beautiful outward appearance, there's a heart that devours widows' houses. What does that mean? How did they devour a widow's house? We don't know exactly how they did it, but that they took advantage of the helpless, that they harmed those who could not help themselves is a fact historically and because Jesus said it. He said they did it. And they receive greater condemnation. What does that mean? They get greater condemnation. Well, it's certainly a, a, a hint, or we hear the echo of this in James's comments in James 3:1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Don't, don't do what I'm doing. You know, you don't want to do what Bill or Michael do. You want to be careful because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. I will. What's he saying? He's saying those in authority have a higher accountability. He's saying this, when I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, that's bad. But when I know the right thing to do and I have the power to do the right thing, but I use that power and authority to do the opposite, that's way worse. And it will incur a stricter judgment. If I can cut to the quick, the religious leaders had perfected and codified what humanity has been doing since walking east of Eden. We're still doing it. Attempting to earn righteousness. Attempting to gain a right standing by what I do, by obedience. Attempting to be right with God, meriting it, earning it. But what has Jesus said every step along the way? Ever since Jesus turned to go to Jerusalem, Jesus said it point blank when he said, the problem is not out there and the problem is not out here. The problem is in your heart. It's what's in a man that defiles him. Not what you eat, not what you wear. It's your heart that's the problem. And what have the religious leaders of Israel done? They've taken a relationship with God and they've made it an outward transaction rather than an inward transformation that comes from the inside out. And Jesus says, don't take the shot. Don't take the medicine. Warning. There's a question, there's a warning, then there's a widow. Look at 21, 1 through 4. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, the smallest coin you can, I mean, you can see through these things almost. They're so thin, they're almost worthless, they're nothing. Two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty Put in all that she had to live on. I said earlier, it's unfortunate there's a chapter break. Because we get to this and we go, wait, Lloyd, you should save that for next week. Let's just finish this section because he's going on to something new. No, he's not going on to something new. And I suggested that it's finding the commonality between these three that helps us understand the whole passage. Oftentimes you'll hear someone teach this. You know what? They'll take these four verses and teach a message, but they'll teach it separate from what we just covered at the back end of chapter 20. And they'll separate it from what follows. They'll just kind of pull it out of the context to teach it. How many of you have heard, ever heard a message on the widow? The widow's might Raise your hand, seriously. Like most all of us? Yeah, and, and, and just nod at me if this is true. Most of the time when you hear a message on the widow, isn't it about her sacrificial gift? You with me? And then, what what does a teacher normally say about her sacrificial gift? How should you give? Like who? Like yeah, yeah, I'm just going. You, that's what that's what happens. You you teach and go. You know, she gave everything she had, and you got to give everything you have. This is. I'm not usually critical of what others teach as a teacher myself, but I came across a message that I mean, literally just takes down takes us down this road. In fact, after I, I, I printed the manuscript read it after after this person says that the widow is a model of biblical giving. You you read that and go, there's a model of biblical giving. This person then goes on to articulate five biblical principles of giving. And then as the message ended, he said this, and I quote, it will require the faith of the widow for us to move to a permanent facility. It will require that you and I give more than makes sense, end quote. And I went, well, there you go. Here's a church plant somewhere. They don't have a permanent facility. And so they took the story of the widow and it was a launching pad for message on giving. So you got to give like the widow if we're ever going to get out of this place and get it to a permanent place. Let me say this, that is the predominant view of that passage. I guarantee I've read at least 15 commentaries, multiple sermons on this. And all but two, basic, two go, this is a picture of giving. And And I'm not gonna be as dogmatic right now to look at you and go, they're wrong. I'm not gonna say they're wrong or that's wrong. Can I tell you this though? It's not what I believe today. And I say today. Because the message I just quoted, you actually heard. If you were in the Franklin High School Auditorium, December 5th, 1999, and I taught you the widow's GHT, M-I-G-H-T. I'm not who I was 12 years ago. I trust that you aren't either. And I want you to know this, you know, this will be the third time I've done this. I want you please understand this. I'm not outing myself in shame. I'm not going to shame. You know, I, it's, it's quite revealing, isn't it, though, that a pastor would have some ulterior motives when he teaches a message. You know, guilty as charged. Uh, do I come with a totally pure motives when I teach? You know, we, we, I can't. I'm not going to throw the baby out with that water and say that was no good. But I'm just going to tell you, that's not what I believe this is teaching today. And if I can attempt again to make it right, let me try. Look at verse 47. Jesus looked at their hearts and said what their hearts were about, who devour widows' houses. Verses one through four, Jesus starts telling the story about a poor widow. Now I'm just gonna ask you, is not the simplest reading of this text. Because remember, the chapter break's not there. Is not the simplest reading of this text to go, okay, he just said these guys devour widows' houses. Hmm, let's see. Oh, and now he's just talking about a poor widow. I'm suggesting that the simplest reading is to say, we're talking about the same thing here, (laughs) that they devour widows' houses, and now he's talking about a poor widow. Widow. And it says she gave more than all the rich. In fact, she gave her last two cents. And I'm going to ask you this. When she did that, does it make more sense to say, well, there you go. That's a model for biblical giving. Or does the simple reading of this text make more sense to say, there's an example of a widow. Who's just been devoured. Can I suggest to you. This is where I'm at. I think we're just looking. We're watching a widow be devoured. Think about widows in your Bible. Do you, ever, do you ever. Is there any widow that God looks at her and says. Give everything you got and go home hungry. No. But think about the context that we're in. I think this supports it. This is my strongest argument for it. What, are we, what have we just walked through that Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying the temple has become a religious system that is so insidious that if you buy into what they're saying, it will suck the last two pennies from a helpless widow. He's condemning a religious system that preys upon the helpless. And note where the story goes. Look in your Bibles at verse 5 and 6. Bill will cover this next week. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and voted gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Oh my gosh. He's describing the temple and all that it's doing, that it's been defiled. That's why he cleaned the temple. And then he's following up with saying, do you see this thing? It's going to be destroyed stone, no stone upon stone. Can I say this? 70 years later, that temple is utterly wiped off. I'm telling you, it's as flat as this concrete floor. But two days after Jesus said this, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And it was the way to God. It's not through this temple. But through Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on the cross for our sins was buried and raised again. The veil was torn. And can I say this? The temple was rendered inoperative in that moment. Even though it took 70 years to wipe it clean. And so the gift of the widow, I'm going to offer this to you. Far from a model for giving. It's a warning about giving anything to a system of religion that says you must do this and if you will do this, God will accept. It's a warning that that is a lethal batch of contaminated steroids. Don't take the shot because the attack rate's 100% and it will kill you even as it kills people today. One final fact, if I can give this to you, about the fungal meningitis outbreak. The fungus itself, when they get the shot, it incubates for 2 to 28 days. So you can go 28 days about your business. Pain-free, maybe, you know, or less pain. All the while, that which could kill you is incubating within. Dr. Benjamin Park of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says this quote, however, it is possible that if patients are identified soon and started on appropriate antifungal therapy, some of the unfortunate consequences may be avoided. End quote. So if you get it early, you may avoid the consequences. Let me say this to you. The appropriate therapy for life with God, a relationship with God, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, who bore our penalty on the cross, buried and raised again. That's the only therapy that'll make you right with God. And can I say on the authority of God's word, if you take that, if you trust that, it's not that you may avoid the consequences, you will avoid it, guaranteed, 100%. Because Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation." For those who are in Christ Jesus. One last thought on the passage. The religious leaders of the day. They love taking the best seat. Let's think about Jesus for a moment. He took the worst seat on the planet earth. He took the cross. And he sat there and he stayed there so that you and I would never have to sit in that seat. Will you trust that alone? Let me ask you to take a moment. We've got the time. I'm going to give you a minute and I'm going to ask you to just sit. You might reread the text. You might whisper, God, what are you saying to me? What are you calling me to believe and trust? Maybe there's some repentance where where you kind of slipping into that, it's what I do that makes me right with God, and you repent from that. It's what Jesus has done. Would you take a moment for your own personal application?